A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. The Larder by Judy Brown In the shop's moist basement, the red wines lay prone in their cool dormitory. Beyond the jars of lobster bisque and canned truffle sauce, both Lancashires sat squat on their wood, tasty and mild like a pair of underground kings. No satisfaction in breaching the waxed cloth, breaking the stiff robes they were buried in, Only the owner had the right to draw the cutting wire twice through the horizontal before quartering. It was ritual to bear each portion upstairs to the shop. Later, we'd peel the cloth off the soft edge and unpuzzle the grain of the clotted blank face. Down there, too, was where they kept the unripe moons, which were soft as what's inside a baby's unfused skull. In the dark, they would salt to rock and start to spin. When at last the old satellite has worn to a nub, an uncut cheese will rise, white and purposeful, with the sun's reflected buttermilk light, to do its work. Think of the store of teeth a shark is born with, which one by one drift to the front of the mouth to take their turn to be the ones to shine, to bite. Judy, where did this poem come from? It has got a genesis back, I suppose, to when I was at school. But the reason probably that it was written... And I nearly went and dug out my folder that has all the drafts in, but it's it's at the back of a store. Um, <laughs> Appropriately. It was written as part of a poem conversation that I used to hold with um, Katrina Naomi. And I'm oh. feeling that the trigger was actually something like taking it to the wire or um, that's huh. that sort of phrase because the first draft was called something like drawing the wire through it. So I, th- I, I think it was the idea of wires that possibly sort of brought this to mind. But it has a history that's a bit, jumps back probably five years from that. So that was about 2018. But I was at, um, I was poet in residence at the Wordsworth Trust in 2013. And I had been at school in the Lake District when I was a teenager. So we all had, because it was a tourist area, we all had like Saturday and Sunday jobs. And then we all worked through the summer and when I was mm-hmm. at university, I used to work through the summer, lots of things, chambermaiding and, you know, kind of hotel reception, clearing up. But for, yeah. for a number of years, I had a job in this place called the Lakeland Barbecue, which sold meat and cheese. And so the setting for this is, in fact, the Lakeland Barbecue, the downstairs 
food storage area. But when I was at um, the Wordsworth Trust, I went back to look for the Lakeland Barbecue to see if I could find the building and couldn't even identify the building that the shop had been in. And just to backtrack a bit, the you mentioned being doing a poetry dialogue with Katrina Naomi. For any listeners who, who've never participated in such a thing, could you explain what it is? Yeah, it was a conversation that took the form just of poems. So one of us would send the other a poem and the next, the other person would swap basically poems every month and mm-hmm. that you would respond to anything you wanted in the poem. It didn't really matter what, whether it was a word, a mood, subject matter, anything. You could choose what you, what you bounced off, which was uh-huh. really nice having that openness. I'm not very good with anything that's very structured. So you, it, it was a bit like Poets Tennis? Sort of, and also a bit like an exchange of letters, but in a in a in the form of um, well, we had letters as well, but it was all prime. There was a lot of communication that happened just inside the poems that we swapped, which was quite interesting. Right. And did any other poems from that dialogue end up in the book? Oh, lots of them, yes, lots and lots. I think it's partly because you often have something that, I mean, this was something I had intended to write about when I was in Grasmere because the shop was in Mm -hmm. Bonus, which is not too far away, but I never did. And somehow the idea of the wire just got me there. So I think it often provided a triangulation point for maybe a couple of things you'd intended to write about all along. Okay, so that was the initial impetus and then that opened up this memory but i think one of the the really lovely things about this poem is that it's kind of almost any basement isn't it i mean it just took me back to childhood memories in particular of going under the house or under the old church that we used to attend and into the what felt like the crypt it was you know full of pots and pans and paints and stuff but <laughs> it's it's so it's such a mysterious kind of primeval space isn't it going into the earth yeah you're absolutely right it is isn't it and it's a sort of place where the rules are slightly different um yeah mm-hmm. that's quite true almost like the shop you know we, there's the shop front there's what's displayed to the air and to the street and presumably, you know, the shopkeeper being as as professional and welcoming and <laughs> and shipshape as possible up, up the top. But when you go downstairs, this is kind of the engine room of the enterprise, isn't it? This is where you mm-hmm. get to see all the stuff that, you know, it's privileged access as well, I think, is part of the fun of this poem, that we get to see behind the scenes. And, you know, all these wonderful details like the jars of lobster bisque and truffle sauce. And um, maybe for our international listeners, you could tell us what both Lancashires are, if they haven't guessed. Yes, um, two types of cheese um, that we, probably the cheese that, we sold a lot of cheeses in the shop, but the Lancashire was by far the most popular. So the the two Lancashires were the kind of uncrowned royalty of this cellar because the owners would buy them in great big sort of foot and a half high cheeses wrapped in wax cloth. And they would have to be cut into slices before they could even be taken upstairs. So they were the, that was, we sold more of those than anything else. And this form of Lancashire, you know, the Lancashire comes in two flavours, tasty and mild, mm-hmm. which was the first thing you ever had to ask the customers, what, which you learned was, you know, if they wanted Lancashire, you would have to say tasty or mild. You know, it was, tasty was more popular, but mild was my favourite. Uh-huh. 
And it's, like you say in the poem, it's, they're like a pair of underground kings. Like a, It's like a mausoleum, isn't it? Or a, a pyramid. And again, the, um, you know, talking to privileged access, you, you presumably, the, the speaker of the poem is this shop assistant, is not allowed the satisfaction of breaching the waxed cloth or breaking the stiff robes that they were buried in. Only the owner had the right to do that. So even down here, the rules are different, but there are still rules, aren't there? Yes, there was quite a lot. Of the, the shop was run, the owners who ran the shop were quite strict about how things happened. Um, and there was a ceremony about these cheeses because they were so big, so much bigger than the, you know, the Stilton, which they also had. Mm-hmm. They, they were always at the centre of this wooden kind of, um, what's the word? What is that word? Huge, great big sort of wooden table down there. And mm-hmm. there were quite a lot of things that we weren't supposed to do. And so I think the the importance of the cheese was also sort of impressed on us by the owners who used to get really kind of agitated, understandably, if anyone miss. Um, measured cheese because you, people would ask you for a quarter and you'd have to judge it by eye so it was always there was an element of stress about the whole business because Ooh. I believe it was a kind of exotic cheese that you didn't do very often there used to be a bit of a do if um if you put too much and somebody didn't want six ounces so yeah it was quite it was a tight ship this shop and also I'm getting the you know the word acolyte is coming to mind in the way you were kind of tending the cheeses Yes, I absolutely do agree. And I think there's also that sense of ancientness. I don't know where this phrase comes from, but that thing that the further underground you go, that you're looking for your own traces by then. I can't Mm. remember who says that, that they go, maybe it was either Freud or Jung in a dream, perhaps, where they they went into the basement of the house and found, you know, and then found some bones and then not finding their own bones among them went on this this is a phrase that stuck in my head so i think there's always that sense of ancientness comes to you as you go underground isn't there and i suppose yes. cheese and wine have a kind of gourmet ancientness too yeah i mean they're, they're not quite timeless but they certainly go back a lot further than maybe the canned truffle sauce um <laughs> <laughs> you know and there's a kind of there's a medieval feel to this you've got the the underground kings and the stiff robes, and I couldn't help noticing you've got you've got drawing and quartering in here, which is quite scary. Only the owner had the right to draw the cutting wire twice through the horizontal before quartering. Ah, you're right. You know, because there is that sense, isn't there, of the cheese as a as a body? It's, it's such a huge thing, this cheese. So yes, it's. I think you're often not. I wasn't aware of that set of kind of medieval type languages but yeah i agree with you i only picked up on the the drawing and quartering this morning possibly because i've been reading some grisly history but you know that whole torture and execution thing that the that was just part of everyday life in those days um and then you say it was ritual to bear each portion upstairs to the shop so that's all it really does feel like you're going back into time you're going into another dimension here at the same time you've got all these wonderfully realistic details of of the basement of the shop yes I suppose it did have a slightly elemental quality to me you know the kind of roasting of chickens on spits which they also did and all of us had these like two foot long ham knives which with our names kind of carved into the handles so we didn't use somebody else's knife and all that measuring by eye and stuff yes I suppose that, (laughs) that possibly might have led me towards a slightly um 
trencherman kind of set of um, vocabulary. Well, you'd certainly want to tread carefully in this place, wouldn't you, with all the equipment and the, the rules and the, um, the scary things down below. And at this point, it really starts to get quite macabre, which I love. You've got the unripe moons, soft as what's inside a baby's unfused skull. I mean, that is just delightfully weird. I mean, did that just come to you? or? I think the poem came quite, quite formed relatively in terms of its the trajectory of its ideas but a lot of that probably comes from something which I don't know a lot about but I have seen done you know the making of cheese and how you start with these almost brain-like curds and they gradually become denser and harder as the aging process sort of happens inside the kind of um, Muslim outside. And then we've got in the dark they would start to rock Salt to rock, sorry, and start to spin. So is this the cheese is coming alive? It's changing its nature. Um, I think it's almost becoming less alive as it becomes more mineral, perhaps, because it's becoming something other than a sort of body and becoming almost, you know, becoming a planet in a way. So I think it's moving away from the the world of bodies and ancestors into something more, not necessarily more celestial, but more um, colder, something colder and more central or, or more governing, I guess, perhaps. It's really interesting what somebody else has sort of sees in it that you don't know that you put in. And then, then of course, you think, yes, that's, that does feel right. But it wasn't a thing I thought less, yes, I'll insert that. Yeah, that's the fun of poetry, isn't it? That mm. you find more in than you've put in to it very often. And then we've got this old satellite worn to a nub, and the uncut cheese will rise, white and purposeful, with the sun's reflected buttermilk light to do its work. Again, it's, it's, it's moving about, it's rising, I guess like the moon, and I can't help wondering about what, what is its work going to be. Yes, I guess, I guess by the time the poem ends, you don't entirely know um, necessary work, but whether it's going to be good work, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, my spine is tingling at this point. And then this wonderful, wonderful ending that's so unexpected, where you say it's, think of the store of teeth, and I'm noticing the, the pun on store there now for the first time, a shark is born with which one by one drift to the front of the mouth, the idea of the teeth drifting to the front of the mouth, to take their turn to be the ones to shine and to bite. What a wonderful word to end on. Yes, it's funny how you start with something and it just takes you... I can see that there are, from the practical trigger, there are certain emblems that I'm often drawn to in poems. Teeth, very often... Um, moons very often, um, and I suppose eating. Um, I think initially I wasn't. I had the idea that it was rats actually that had teeth that moved to the front of the mouth, but it isn't. It was sharks, mm -hmm. which actually fitted better because I was keen for it to be correct. Because that idea of teeth moving forward into to sort of do their biting was just so kind of powerful to me because in a sense there is a power in this subterranean place that's both sort of archaic and elemental 
but that's also like connected to the grown up world. You know, you 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 kind of have to approach the cheeses with deference. And mm-hmm. I suppose the ending is concerned with that, you know, is concerned with the kind of things that you can do when you set yourself off, shining and biting. Well, I mean, what could be more terrifying than emerging from the darkness of this basement than a shark? I mean, it's real stuff of nightmares at this point. And it really struck me that the end, you know, that the bite, because, you know, we bite the cheese, don't we? But by the end, through, through the kind of the figurative language, it's almost like you could say the cheese is biting back, that we think we're in control and suddenly we're the ones being confronted with this nightmarish mouthful of teeth that are just moving forward and forward and forward and they keep coming. And governing the tides, I suppose. Um, I hadn't actually thought, the interesting thing about having this sort of conversation is something that I had not thought about this poem, but I think is probably there, is because this was like a a Saturday job I had when I was at school, I think there is some element of it that is a little bit dealing with the question of like coming of age. And although the mm-hmm. the cheeses and the moons and so on are, are all person, there's this kind of sense of creaturely burgeoning. Yeah. I think in some ways it's kind of a celebration that the idea too at that age is like you want to be the one who has the whose turn it is to shine and to bite as well. Um, and you don't know oh, yes. Yes. yet what it's going to feel like. Yes. Yeah, I can see that now. There's a lot in this basement, isn't there, when you start to have a look around? I guess that you often find that there's a paradox, isn't there? You know, the paradox, that, that conflict of sort of ancient hierarchies and kings and rules and stuff. And then also um, that sense of breaking free, which I am connecting, I think, in my mind, Sub- subconsciously when I wrote this but I think it's it's definitely there with that sense of like you know when you're asking yourself who am I going to be yes yeah that's a really great way of looking at it because it's about newness and replacement of what is worn out I suppose yeah absolutely and picking up on that question who am I going to be I mean if we apply it to the the poem how close is this what we have on the page to the first version I couldn't dig out the very first handwritten version, but I did have a look at the first typed version. And I think it was probably written a bit faster than it might normally have been because of this conversation process. But Mm -hmm. the first handwritten version seemed to have basically, I mean, it sounds odd to call this an argument, but in my head, I see it as an argument, you know, that there is Mm -hmm. a a movement from one idea to another, even if it's an argument through metaphor. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty much intact in the first version, even though the title was different, which gave it a different feel, I suppose. I mean, obviously, I've done quite a lot. You know, you read it, you read it out loud. Yeah. You kind of care very carefully about the syntax. And if it doesn't feel quite right to make sure that the, the, the pace is right and the, mm-hmm. um, the way that one thing kind of moves into another, because I knew I was pushing the envelope with the the movement of the argument from one thing to another and these strange sort of both animate and inanimate creatures. So I really wanted to to make sure that that was natural, hopefully. But it's quite hard if you don't get that step in the, you know, if, if that step doesn't, if those steps in that kind of argument don't happen naturally, it's quite hard to fill them in later. 
Um, so it was a single thought in some ways. And also, yeah, I mean, because it is quite daring from where you start to where you get to. And I think one way that you manage to do this is that you anchor it. And this is something I, th- I think you do a lot in your poetry. You, you have got these wonderful qualities of observation that you can anchor the reality of the poem very much in the, in the specific detail. So we start off in the shop's moist basement. A great adjective. The red wines lay prone in their cool dormitory. And then, as I said, the lobster bisque and the canned truffle sauce and the tasty and mild are italicized in the text like brand names on labels. And so it's absolutely realistic and convincing. And I think once you've kind of got the reader in that space where we trust you and we trust what you show us, then you can take us further and further and further out into the realms of imagination. That's a lovely thing to say. Because I think that I strongly feel that, that I want things to be both real and have their symbolic forms. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my head, it doesn't stop being a shop with some cheeses that, yes. and a yes. kind of slightly yeah, yeah. anxious owner not wanting anything to be wasted. At this, but at the same time, it is because, of, because that's the way you, I think that's the way you think all your life, but I think you do particularly think it at sort of 14, 15 that everything means more than than just what it is, and I think I think it does, yeah. and so that's lovely what you say because that is really what I'm aiming for in my poems a lot of the time. So it's realistic with- that things should not lose their their down to earth nature, but at the same time, their other nature should be visible. I suppose I, absolutely, I I get that from this and and lots of your your other poems. So. Okay, so you started with that through line of metaphorical argument and you had a different title. Are we allowed to know what the original title was? It was the original title was Taking the Wire to It. Huh, which is more edgy, isn't it? Yes, but it perhaps gave me freedom to like take things apart more than I might have done if I had started writing a nostalgic poem about being a teenager working in a cheese and cheese shop and Slightly, yeah. slightly um, Tudor shop full of legs of pork and beef and mm. not legs of beef, but, you know, kind of massive joints of beef. It was not a very um, delicate experience. No. But when you start from the larder, you know, you can really sneak up on us a lot more, can't you? If you start with the wire, then we're already slightly on edge. But the larder is quite welcoming, isn't it? And then you kind of softly, softly take us further and further out into uncharted space. I think you're right because I think the kind of slight dissection kind of element of the wire, I didn't really like that because because this is like a space where everything comes from. You know, it's where it's where bodies turn into themselves. It's it's mm-hmm. it's a kind of source place. And so I felt the larder was both was kind of was had had a bit more to do with the real move of the poem, which is partly celebratory. And partly about being a store for whatever's coming next in life. I don't think I put those thoughts into my head. In no, but there's a richness, there's a kind of cornucopia of the larder, isn't it? I don't know how. Is that a very English word? Would international listeners recognise that? Maybe they would call it the store or something. Um, but certainly, um, I remember we had a yeah, larder pantry. It's that ballpark, isn't it? And so, how did you? How how did it evolve once you'd got that basic? through line 
I think often with this sort of poem, if you have got the back, I, I mean, it's difficult. If you haven't got the through line, it's difficult to find it. But if you have it in the first version, then mm-hmm. what I would normally try and do is just make it as smooth as possible and as coherent as possible. But, you know, making the jumps just the right just the right kind of stretch so that there's a bit of a stretch, but not too much so that nobody falls. That's, that's the aim. <laughs> it's one of, we don't have to lose any readers through sure the you get there, but it's, <laughs> that's, that's the aim to sort of make it more into what it is. Make it a better version of what it is. And I think the fact, you know, if you're listening and you have a look at the text on the website, it's all one block. It's like one long blank verse-ish you know, but it looks, it's not black verse, but it looks, it's got that feeling when you look at it on the page. And it, I guess it's, it's like the, the basement itself. Everything is crammed together in there. You, you know, that you don't get any respite to go from one space to another. If it was all neat stanzas. Yes, definitely. I don't think I necessarily have as varied a range of forms that I use as some poets do, but this is definitely one that I use probably in circumstances where, something depends on having forward pace or a kind of argument that you want somebody to follow almost to surprise themselves at where they're going to end up. If the journey were broken mm. up, that would be, that would interfere with the effect that I'm getting, I suppose. And in this case, pres- yeah. because there is the thing that's really happening is that you're going down the stairs into this deeper place and discovering things. It feels right that it should be, each step should be equal which is yes. the case in that sort of block I time. see, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much. Well, thank you, Judy. This has been a wonderful um, deep dive into the into the basement. So maybe this would be a, a good point for us to listen to the poem again and, and step back down into that space. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. The Larder by Judy Brown In the shop's moist basement, the red wines lay prone in their cool dormitory. Beyond the jars of lobster bisque and canned truffle sauce, both Lancashires sat squat on their wood, tasty and mild like a pair of underground kings. No satisfaction in breaching the waxed cloth, breaking the stiff robes they were buried in, Only the owner had the right to draw the cutting wire twice through the horizontal before quartering. It was ritual to bear each portion upstairs to the shop. Later, we'd peel the cloth off the soft edge and unpuzzle the grain of the clotted blank face. Down there, too, was where they kept the unripe moons, which were soft as what's inside a baby's unfused skull. In the dark, they would salt to rock and start to spin. When at last the old satellite has worn to a nub, an uncut cheese will rise, white and purposeful, with the sun's reflected buttermilk light, to do its work. Think of the store of teeth a shark is born with, 
which one by one drift to the front of the mouth to take their turn to be the ones to shine, to bite. The Larder by Judy Brown is from her collection Lairs, published by Seren. Her earlier collections were Loudness, shortlisted for the Forward and Aldborough Prizes for Best First Collection, and Crowd Sensations, shortlisted for the Ledbury Forte Prize. Judy has been Poet-in-Residence at the Wordsworth Trust, a 2014 Writer-in-Residence at Gladstone's Library, and most recently held an Arts and Culture Fellowship at Exeter University, spending summer of 2019 with a team of mathematicians who work on uncertainty quantification. In the past, she has worked as a lawyer in London and Hong Kong. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links, as well as a full episode archive, at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.